0: Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. I really thank you for joining me. I know I say that every week, but I do mean it. I really thank you for joining us on this program, on this journey, as uh, we continue bringing you new paradigms for a new world and choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Mon- Sundays at 1- 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at uh, richarddugan.com. We podcast these programs uh, at uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and a lot of other locations that folks are continuing to extend out into the uh, into the internet or on to the internet. I'm not sure on or in, uh, but we are grateful for that. And uh, also, uh, we post our guests' website so that you can find out more about what's going on in their world, how they are changing the world for the better in their lives and the lives of the people around them, maybe you. And then uh, we also ask that if you like what we're doing here, you enjoy the conversation, but you also love the information and you want to share that with others, we ask you to do so. Uh, We ask you to go to their website and then of course pass it on. And if you do indeed enjoy what we are doing, uh, we ask you, if you can, to help us, support us financially. We do have a PayPal and Patreon account uh, that uh, you can uh, click into and support us. We use those, those platforms for your security as well as ours. And uh, we thank you so much for uh, joining us, especially today. We have a very special guest who has uh, been a part of a, there's no other way to put it, a movement that's been going on for a long time long time. uh, Connected with a dear friend of mine who I've known only through this program because I've had her on uh, at least three or four times since 2007. The late Barbara Marks Hubbard. We actually ran a special program of hers last summer uh, that I had interviewed her as she was literally packing to go to Australia. I couldn't believe it but it went very well. We had a lot of fun with that and uh, my guest today is the co-founder of, if I am correct here, of the Center for Integral Wisdom, Dr. Mark uh, Gaffney. I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. This is this is a delight. I'm delighted, Richard. Thank you. Now, you're a, you're a visionary thinker, social activist. You are a passionate philosopher, as well as the author of 10 books. And you are also, uh, I, I want to get into uh, your particular philosophy, but I want to go back. I want to go back to the beginnings of Mark Gaffney's philosophy and how it has grown, how it has changed to what it is today. Where did you start on what I like to refer to for myself as your search?
1: You know, beautiful question, and I, and I appreciate it. The You know, we all start, you know, right when it, when it starts, we start at the beginning. We all start in our, our early childhood and stuff happens and we're formed and we're invited. But, you know, really we start before this lifetime, right? We enter into this lifetime with an entire journey that we've, we've already taken. So I started actually deep in the lineage of Hebrew wisdom, right? The lineage of Kabbalah, Hasidism, Talmud. Aramaic texts and I was raised on their milk, right? I I suckled from their milk and you know immersed myself for the, you know couple of decades, you know deeply in That world of sacred text. So that's really where I was, you know born and raised and formed and then, you know from that point moved out expanded broadened, you know, to first a kind of broader sense of philosophy, kind of entered the philosophies of the world, you know, then into the sciences, you know, molecular biology and physics in that world, then economics, anthropology, the 11 schools of psychology, and kind of just broadened into the wider sense of what the world wisdoms had to say, Mm -hmm. and then began to try and integrate it into a larger Kind of meta-world story, you know, with the understanding, you know, in a word, that, Richard, we live at this time between worlds, right, much like the Renaissance was, we're in a time between worlds, we're in a time between stories, you know, mm. much like that moment in Florence, in which da Vinci and his cohorts understood, right, there was a pandemic, the Black Plague, which destroyed, you know, half of the world, and they understood that they couldn't go into every village, and heal every person they just didn't have the capacity and so they understood that in order to transform reality we needed to actually change we needed a phase shift in the fundamental narrative of reality and that became modernity that became modernity you know with all of its glory with its great dignities the great dignities of modernity universal human rights and modern medicine and the emergence of new forms of literature etc all of it Gorgeous, but of course, the fault lines in the new story of modernity, right, the separate self, right, the sense of the, the desiccation of the self from the larger life field, you know, and in a number of other critical fault lines in that storyline actually produced the disasters of modernity and postmodernity, which is really just a hyperformed modernity and brought us to this point where we're faced, and that's what we've been talking about for the last decade, we're faced with catastrophic risk and potential existential risk. Right. And, and that's the fault lines of that story of modernity that da Vinci and his friends did, which both unfolded enormous wonder and enormous, enormous potential destruction. And so we're we're again at that renaissance moment and we need to make this da Vinci move, because if we don't, nothing's else actually going to shift the trajectory of the story. We need to rearticulate right, a new world story, a new universe story a new set of first principles, new narratives of identity, new narratives of power, new narratives of desire, new narratives of the universe story itself. And that's where Barbara and I met, right? In other words, you know, Barbara and I met in this quest, we came to it from different places, but this articulation of the new story as the fundamental response, right, to the the invitation and demand and threat of this moment in time, right, is where we're standing, Define for me, if I'm pronouncing
0: it correctly, did
1: you say modernity? Modernity, right? So by, modernity. By modernity, we would mean, you know, let's say Renaissance, right? Okay. Where pre-modernity would be, let's say, approximately up to the Renaissance, in which you had individual great religions, right, which ruled, which reigned. Each one made a claim to a, its own kind of exclusive truth. They were mutually exclusive with the other systems. That enormous depth and interiority. And enormous shadow, right? It's pre human rights, right? Pre emergence of the feminine, you know, pre, you know, a, an entire form of information gathering, right? Didn't exist. So it had enormous, you know, there was obviously a world of global elites and super short lifespans. I mean, in the 17th century, the lifespan average lifespan was 17 years old. So in other words, it had enormous pain. And, and yet, you know, in its elite to rich interiority, Mutual exclusivity, right? And, you know, as Voltaire said, you know, when he brought modernity, its next step after the Renaissance, remember the cruelties. Was filled with glory and filled with cruelties. So that's pre-modernity. You know, that goes, let's say, until the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is the inception of modernity, which is a new world of universal human rights, right? A new way of information gathering, new possibilities of social mobility, the emergence of the feminine, right? You know, modern science. Right, literature, and most important, the, the disambiguation of the value spheres, meaning interiors, you know, art, religion, science, and morals, they were split. The church no longer owned science. The church could no longer say to Galileo what he saw from a telescope, right? Those three value spheres got split, which allowed for the explosion right, of modernity right? All of a sudden, wow, you could actually do spirituality and you could do science and you could do morals, goodness, and they weren't dependent on each other. They weren't dominated by the church, right. That split was critical. But then that differentiation, that differentiation of value spheres became a dissociation. They dissociated mm-hmm. from each other. And that dissociation, right? Introduced the disasters of modernity. And one of them is Corona. Coronavirus is a direct result right? Of a modern story. So what was the modern story? What was the modern narrative? The modern narrative was very much success. It was a success story. It was the introduction of a notion that you're productive if you produce and you have value if you produce, right? It's a win, lose metrics. People are competing in this win, lose metrics, right? They they're able to achieve and have social mobility. So they'll be kind of generally happy. Right, there's some general universal principles, generally kind of amorphic. But that that modern success story, that modern win-lose metrics, right, that was introduced in, as the core structure driving reality, that actually is the direct cause of our pandemic. Right. That's actually right, however you tell the pandemic story, which is a different conversation, right? Mm-hmm. It's very clear to us that you know a few thousand people knew about it way in advance. So why didn't we do anything about it? We didn't know anything about it because it's a win-lose metrics. No one wanted to risk their job in the system. No, no one wanted to risk their place right in the hierarchy of the win-lose metrics. And so no one called it out. We optimize for not resiliency. We optimize for efficiency, quarterly profits, win-lose metrics, mm-hmm. right? You know, China against the United States, win-lose metrics, right? You know, hi, hybrid warfare, win-lose metrics. But it's win-lose metrics all the way up and all the way down. The pandemic was eminently avoidable, was talked about, described in multiple papers, multiple books. Everyone knew all about it, but it was actually win-lose metrics, you know, and probably a hundred different nodes, right, in the world complicated system that each time the win-lose metrics won and we ignored the pandemic. And the result was, of course, you know, at this point, you know, lots of dead people all over the world and tragedy.
0: Well, one of the aspects of this current narrative is, from my observation, Uh, only being around 60 years. I'm just Mm -hmm. 60. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I I hope that I get another 40. I have to outlive my great-grandmother who made it to 100. Yay. Uh, Because I was telling people in the late 90s, every time we went to a family reunion, I was going to outlive that woman, but she was making it really hard because she was still alive. And I didn't want her to die. Don't get me wrong. But... (laughs) but I believe that uh, I've got another good 40 years to go. However, one of my observations has been over the years as I've watched influenza pass across the United States and continue on every year, we did the same thing over and over and over again. And that was nothing.
1: Right. (laughs)
0: This time we did something different and it didn't matter what it was, it was different. So that means that we are going to get a different result this time than we did all those other times that we had the influenza. And yes, people say, well, yeah, but we had the vaccine. Well, we didn't have the vaccine in the 60s and early 70s. That I think only came about in the late 70s, early 80s, where people were getting the flu shot, which, by the way, I haven't had for 40 years and I haven't had the flu for 40 years um be that as it may is that part of rewriting the story for those of us who are i i want to believe that my consciousness has been rising over the last uh 30 years 40 years or so since my search began at 17 Yay! that uh my observations are at least we've done something different. So now we're going to get a different result. So we're back. We're out of the story of insanity, according to Einstein and that now we can write a new, not ending per se, because none of these stories really end. They just like, okay, that's the end of this chapter. Okay. Chapter 6,397, right? Can those of us who are really working, such as yourself, through the work that you're doing, can we collectively guide the story to in a direction that becomes not only more beneficial for all, but creates opportunities we didn't even know existed? That's my optimism from the beginning of this was that we're doing something different. So that means that the opportunities are boundless if we but stop and go within. 2020 is the year of perfect vision as I've been declaring it since September of last year. And I'm encouraging people to go within, to find the still small place, the peace, the calm, the inspiration, the guidance, and so forth. So talk to us from
1: that perspective, would you please? Well, oh, Richard, that, that's all, first of all, that's all wonderful. And you're obviously a wonderful energy and a wonderful human. So it's a pleasure to meet you. And, and let me kind of very gently push back a little bit. Okay. Yes, you know, we have to go within. Yes, we have to find inspiration. Yes, you know, the cold mama ka, the text that you cite, the still small voice, right? in Kings 2, right, is, is unbelievably important, right? And that's not going to get us home, right? Okay. We're, need is we need a set of first principles we need actually to evolve the source code itself of consciousness and culture and it's not by accident that neither the new age movement nor the human potential movement was able actually to engage reality and transform it outside of very narrow enclaves and there's a number of reasons one of them is is that neither actually engaged in a serious attempt to articulate a set of validated first principles. And validated first principles means that we actually engage the eye of the senses, empirical knowing, the eye of the mind, right? different forms of mind knowing, ranging from mathematics to anthropology, and the eye of the heart, of course, the eye of the spirit. All three faculties of those perceptions need to be integrated. We need to take the best of pre-modern knowing and all the wisdom streams, the best of modern knowing and all the wisdom streams, the best of postmodern insight, we need to weave it together and then generate a new whole, a second simplicity. Not a first simplicity, not sloganeering, right? Not new age declarations, but actually a second simplicity of elegant first principles that actually become a shared global ethos for a global civilization. If we can't do that, right, then essentially we're, we're engaging in two, one or two major moves, either we're kind of retreating into the classical religions, which is great, but they're not going to take us home because we need all of our challenges are global. So you need, therefore, a global spirituality. And you, we don't have local. Our, our core challenges are not Nepal and Idaho, right? It's one world, right? In other words, mm-hmm. you have Golan, who gets infected in a wet market in Wuhan, China, right? And there you are, right, locked down in Idaho. Right? There is no local, so we need a global spirituality based on a set of first principles that are not dogmatic, but actually emerge out of the actual ground of integrated knowing that we have, and you gotta be able to speak them, I don't know, to a trucker in Wyoming, right, or in Central Asia, right, and at the best university in the world, and at the best divinity school, meaning they've gotta speak not just to the new age or human potential, or post-religious world. They need to speak deeply into the 60 to 70 percent of the world that lives under a world religion. What we've done is we've kind of, we've isolated in our enclaves, in our little silos. Everyone goes to Esalen or whatever they do in that particular world. That's not going to cut it, right? We need actually to make a da Vinci move. Da Vinci's move was, right, Mar- Marcelo Facinio's move was, right, was a set of first principles, right? And we need to actually be able to answer the question of, who are you? N- not with a kind of, you know declaration not with a kind of vapid or saccharine claim no actually what's a human being who who are you what, right and be able to say it in seven sentences and then to unpack it who are you right what are you here for right how do i actually know how to act right how do i become a sovereign person what does that mean right so so without answering those really clearly right again mm-hmm. not dog, not dogmatically we're not talking about dogma. we're talking about the opposite of dogma that which is emergent from the structural nature of reality. Have you come up with this? We're we're working across the board, right? And and I think we're doing, you know, and I I would say, Richard, reality has been good to us. We've been deep in this conversation for a couple of decades. And the last 10 years, it's coming together. And we've actually began began to articulate a source code that really works across platforms. I'll just give you an example. Give an example. I'll give you two examples. Maybe we'll play with two examples. Okay. So let's take unique self, right? So let's take who are you? So here's an expression of who are you. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do it slowly, and then I'll try and we can unpack it and talk together if that works for you. But we'll give yes, you a please. formula. Who are you? So that's the question: who are you? So you are an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire. That is the initiating and animating energy and eros of all that is that lives in you as you and through you that never was is or will be ever again other than through you. And as such you have an irreducibly unique perspective and an irreducibly unique quality of intimacy that come together to foster your unique gift that addresses unique need and your unique circle of intimacy and influence that can be addressed by no one that ever was, is, or will be other than yourself. And as such, you actually have the capacity, and therefore the obligation, to stand at the abyss of the particular darkness in your world and say in the unique formulation that's yours and yours alone, let there be light, to actually transform that. And as you join together with other unique selves around the world, you actually manifest a new structure of evolutionary intimacy what we call a unique self symphony. Barbara and I called it a planetary awakening and love through unique self symphonies, but a unique self symphony, which is a bottom up, self organizing, self actualizing cosmos, period. Now, that's a that's a series of sentences. But those series of sentences, we just said them in about two minutes. Mm-hmm. Right? We didn't read a whole book, right? We didn't write. <laughs> now, we can footnote that whole thing, right? All that's right. But that's actually clear. That's not, yeah. it's not I'm part of the one. It's not my Myers Briggs test, it's not my talent. No, I'm a unique expression of the field of consciousness and desire. Meaning I move beyond separate self. I actually work and try and create a healthy separate self. I got to work with my false self, but ultimately I transcend into the sense of true self, right? The singular that has no plural. I'm part of the larger field of consciousness and desire, not just consciousness. Ramana Maharshi limited it to consciousness. It's actually consciousness and desire, right? What what uh, Alfred North Whitehead had called the appetition of the cosmos, the appetites of the cosmos. Cosmos has desire, so I'm part of the I'm part of the one field of consciousness and desire, right, which is the seamless code of the universe. But it's seamless, but not featureless. And I'm a unique feature. I'm a unique expression. I'm a unique self. Then I locate that unique self in an evolutionary context. I become evolutionary unique self. And when I actually realize that's the love intelligence awake in me, right, and and actually pulsing through me. And it's actually mine to actually be that leading edge of evolution. And when I awaken to that realization, I actually move from being homo sapien to what we wanna call homo amor, right? The new human, the new humanity. And, and that possibility is not elite, right? It's not for the elite enlightened in Nepal or the back streets of Jerusalem or Beirut. We're actually talking about a democratization of greatness, or a democratization of enlightenment. Those are, that's, a, that's an example, brother, of a first principle. It's exciting.
0: In, it is very exciting. And it is, I believe, from my readings, of what I like to call the ancient wisdom teachings. Okay. And I do consider this to be sort of in that category <clears throat> of a book I've carried with me since I was 21 years old. Uh, it was given to me by a dear friend of mine who has since left this physical world mm-hmm. called The Impersonal Life. But it's best summarized by a scientist a physicist named schrodinger who i only saw this quote a few weeks ago in a documentary Mm -hmm. about other issues other subjects Mm -hmm. where he said there is only one mind only one and we are all a part of that tell me if that is from your perspective even close to accurate. If not, tell me the difference between
1: Again, that aspect. Totally got you. So Schrodinger was talking about true self. Schrodinger is fantastic, right? And he talks about you know the, the true self as the singular that has no plural. That's a quote from him, right? But what he's describing is not unique self. That's not what I just described. He's describing mm-hmm. the first level, which is the level that he both realized somewhat in his own experience, but also his studies, we're in mysticism that emphasized what we're calling true self. But true self is absolutely necessary and utterly insufficient, right? That is to say, and that's what I mean, we're not quite talking about ancient wisdom. That's a mistake, right? Ancient wisdom gave us something that's pre modern, that's the best of pre modernity. But remember, ancient wisdom didn't understand uniqueness, it didn't understand individuation, it didn't understand the feminine it didn't understand somatics, it didn't understand early childhood, it didn't understand attachment theory, etc. So and it's the move we make, is a, it's a regressive move to go just to pre-modern. We want to integrate the pre-modern. We want to take the best. So Schrodinger is talking about right, the, 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 the very gorgeous realization of the interior sciences, right, the mystical traditions, Right? This notion of true self, the singular that has no plural, the one mind, or, but it's not quite a one mind, right? It's a one eros, right? It's a one field of conscious love intelligence and love desire, right? Meaning it's not just being, it's also becoming, right? It's not just quiet, infinite mind bliss, it's also pulsing, throbbing, moving forward, right? Ecstatically urgent, right? So this notion of being and becoming. But I'm actually not, I'm a unique expression of it. So it's not the impersonal mind. Let me see if I can, and this was Schrodinger's mistake, right? It would kind of phrase it like this. Step one is the personal as in personality. Okay, that's step one. Now I want to move that separate self. Now I want to transcend the personal personality into what Schrodinger describes, right, as often as the impersonal, which you just described Mm -hmm. beautifully. That's step two. But then step three, let's now include modernity, right? And it's, it's insights, right? In post-modernity. Step three is the personal beyond the impersonal. You get that? The personal beyond the impersonal is unique self, right? So unique self and separate self, they're not the same. Separate self is the personal before, right? The impersonal. Then we transcend that personal to the impersonal, the field of the one. But actually the one then individuates again, Right into the unique, irreducibly unique expression of true self, because actually, Brother Richard, there is no true self that Schrodinger describes any place in the manifest world, it doesn't exist. There's no true self that's not unique, not, it doesn't exist. Now, if you check developmental levels of consciousness, you realize that it takes a certain place we've got to develop until I actually begin to act, naturally act from the unique self, right? And I actually begin to distinguish between the ego. The separate self, the personality, and the unique self, the personal beyond the impersonal. But Schrodinger's notion of the impersonal is a tragic mistake. It's why it was rejected by society, because we actually have an intuitive sense of the dignity of the personal. And so when enlightenment teachers come and tell us, no, 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 the impersonal, right, we we, kind of try it for a while, but actually it violates our essential sense of self, and we're not wrong. And and the enlightenment teachers, most of them in America trained in the East, tell us, no, die in the cushion. You got to get rid of the personal. No mistake, right? You got to move from the personal to the impersonal. And then you've got to go the next step to the personal beyond the impersonal. That's what I mean by a new first principle, right? We can't go back to a regressive ancient tradition move. That's exactly what hasn't worked, right? It's an important step. But now we got to take the next step. Does that make sense, brother? It
0: uh, it does. But I'm going to ask you to uh, further elucidate based upon another example that I have uh, used. Love it help to describe for some the connection that we have on that higher level on, if I'm understanding the the differentiation of the impersonal level Mm -hmm. using the example from Star Trek, Next Generation Uh of a character Roddenberry Uh probably didn't intend to uh, to, uh, have it defined this way if you will, or described but from my perspective this character epitomizes the connectedness that we have as spiritual beings, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of that consciousness. Right. And that's the Borg. You have right. all of these individuals, unique in and, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're communicating, we'll just say through Wi-Fi, okay? Right. And they're each doing a different task towards a collective goal, whatever that goal may be. And I see the same thing with us. You have your task, Mark. I have my task. Um, Barbara had her task before she left this world. And as far as I know, she's still on task. I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't still on task in uh, in the next world. But we don't know what the big picture looks like. And that's why when I talk to people about trusting your intuition and following it, the intuition is not going to put you in harm's way. It may challenge you. But if you listen and follow, you are going to find incredible experiences coming your way. And this also ties in for me with the conversation about duality and the fact that there's no such thing as duality uh, in that if you look out into the cosmos, say through the Hubble's telescope. Right. And you see everything moving around and exploding and crashing and burning and on and on and on and on and on. And what do we do from our perspective as human beings? We go, ooh, ah, oh, wow, incredible. There's no fear. There's no real judgment. It's just a, an appreciation of the awesomeness of the universe. But when we come down to our level, oh, my gosh, it's like – someone cut off your arm and you're gushing blood and there's something wrong with that. And the way I have been viewing much of what's been going on in the last 30 or 40 years is, and it's only in the last few years that I've kind of come to this understanding or this, at least for me, I, I don't put this on anybody else. For me, it's just what is. I, and I do my utmost not to judge it, but to, at l- just to, to kind of flow through it. doesn't matter what it is. could be a wildfire. I have to tell you that when my wife and I were evacuated uh, during the Whittier fire a couple summers ago, I wasn't scared when we finally got down off of the hill and we were out of harm's way with our animals and so forth. I actually felt really good thinking, oh, what an adventure this is. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with our home. Uh, thank goodness it, it didn't burn. But... Yeah. This is, this is kind of neat. It's it's like a, a staycation, uh. We we stayed at hotels we probably never would have. We experienced th- experienced things that we probably never would have otherwise. But let's, but, let's
1: let's go back. Sure, go ahead. Let's go to the Borg. Okay. Sure. Let's start there. So so the Borg is actually it's actually a great example. So the Borg, right? These kind of antagonists that appear in Star Trek, right? Are these you know, these organisms that are kind of linked in a kind of hive mind, right? This kind of collective, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, they assimilate, right? They can, which means essentially they forcibly transform individual beings, you know, into drones by injecting, if you remember, I think, a nanoprobes. Yeah. Right? And, you know, they're so. so let's just kind of, there's a reason why the Borg became the antagonist in Star Trek. So go slow with me. Because that's actually allow us to elucidate this first principle. Sure. Star Trek is based on the dignity of separate self. That's where culture was at its best in the Gene Roddenberry period. Right? The 60s were about the dignity of the individual. Right? In other words, you, know, you can kind of tune in. Right. You can kind of drop out. You can kind of write. and You can do all the things you do. Timothy, thank you, Mr. Leary. Right. You know, basically, it was, this, it was this beautiful expression, let's step out of the conformity of the 50s and let's reify the wondrous dignity of the separate self. And it's fantastic. It's a very important move. It was about getting a more healthy separate self, more attuned to itself, more alive, etc. which is fantastic. However, it was limited, right? Mm-hmm. Contra to the healthy, dignified separate self is the Borg. Right. The Borg is the exactly the contra, right? That's actually the enemy. The hive mind is problematic, right? The hive mind is an antagonist. It's not the goal. But of course the reason is because culture, right? And the leading edges of consciousness hadn't yet articulated the new possibility. So actually, right, the next possibility would actually, let's try and think about it this way. A separate self is a puzzle piece. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a puzzle piece is part of a larger puzzle but the separate self at its best knows, wow, I'm part of a larger puzzle as you described, right? I've got something to complete. I got something to do. But if the separate self thinks I'm only a separate self, then, you know, have you ever seen a puzzle piece? It's trying to walk <laughs> around, can't quite get there. doesn't quite know where it fits in. It's told by society that there is no puzzle and it goes insane. Right? So that's separate self. That's the puzzle, the isolated puzzle piece. Then we get to true self and true self is, Oh, I'm part of the group mind. I may have an individual function like an ant or a bee, but basically I'm forced by the group, right? Which is precisely the notion of community that dominated Marxism, Leninism, and Stalinism, right? So the Borg, right? You know, as it was articulated, represented actually a kind of communist state and a kind of enforced right social where everyone's got a particular goal but ultimately it's the state that rules and we inject in you nanoprobes in order to make sure that you're assimilated and then we surg- surgically augment them with kind of cybernetic components well so that's that's an unhealthy version of true self but the motion is let's go to true self right there's a, a right intuitive move I'm, I'm true self schrodinger had a healthy version of it one mind right right singular that has no plural right? I'm part of the one, but of course the problem there is, oh, there's only one whole puzzle. There are no puzzle pieces at all, but that makes you just as insane as <laughs> a puzzle piece because you actually can, check. <laughs> there's these lines separating these puzzle pieces. It's not just one, but again, your teacher tells you that's just an illusion. Go meditate and you move beyond that illusion. You realize you're part of the board. It's just one. So, okay. So that's not right. So I've got to actually go the next step. The Borg is ultimately the impersonal. It's really the one that dominates, right? The pre-Borg, the separate self, it's the individual that dominates. Unique self is the third step. That's where, that's the real first principle. Unique self is a puzzle piece that actually knows full well and has found the puzzle and is able to actually complete the puzzle. So the unique self, right, is actually the, the, the unique irreducible perspective that you have, right? That means that your puzzle piece complete it fits in it's held by the larger context you have an irreducible, unique function but actually you're in a dialectical tension with the board the board doesn't own you the board doesn't overwhelm you actually your own irreducible uniqueness creates a devotion within you in which you're of service and it emerges from your own sense of autonomy which moves you to be in this larger communion as a puzzle piece that's beautiful so you're a puzzle piece that completes the puzzle. Yeah. Jump with me one more step, brother. Then you actually emerge as evolutionary unique self, which is not just a puzzle piece that completes the puzzle, it's a unique self living in an evolutionary context that feels the evolutionary impulse moving in it that has the whole view of evolution that can actually see from the first nanosecond of the big bang till this moment that richard and mark are talking and realize that there's actually a thread throughout that entire story and i can actually feel evolution pulsing in me and actually realize that our conversation not only com- not only completes a particular piece of the puzzle but richard we can we can even evolve the puzzle right we can even evolve the puzzle we can evolve the puzzle itself it's right? so, wow so now we've got these four images right an isolated puzzle piece goes insane because it can't find larger puzzle only a puzzle goes insane because we deny the individuation of the puzzle pieces unique self. ah puzzle piece that completes the puzzle evolutionary unique self a puzzle piece that evolves the puzzle so now we've taken the borg up three levels it's no longer the antagonist in star trek we've actually right? Transform James Kirk from a separate self into a genuine unique self. Wow. That's a first principle. Unique self. That's a first principle. So actually every human being has to know that they're a unique self. Every child needs to know. They have a song to sing, a poem to write, a way of living, laughing, loving, breathing in the world that's theirs and theirs alone as an expression of their unique incarnation of the larger field of evolutionary love. Right? Well, that works. That's a structure. of Now, nat- we desperately need that, Richard, because yeah. we're in a moment in which artificial intelligence, for example, is about to obsolete you know, probably 80 to 90 percent of jobs in the world. So if you don't have a job, you're not needed by the system. You're not worried about exploitation anymore, which was the 20th century problem. You're worried about irrelevance, right? Mm. Actually, you have artificial intelligence networks, you know, machine learning. They're actually trading with each other. We don't even need you for labor. We're not even in hunger games. We're not even that kind of dystopia. That have to become irrelevant. And you're irrelevant to yourself. So, wow, that's a problem. That's a, that's a devastation of the basic life world. So you actually need a new narrative of identity. You can't just be a separate self with a function in the board. You actually have to be a unique self. You're a unique expression of divinity. Yeah. You're a unique expression of all that is. Right? And therefore, you've got a unique gift to give, a unique quality of being, and a unique art form, and a unique expression, and a unique creativity. And then education begins to optimize, not for training people to be productive as separate selves in a marketplace that actually denudes them of their uniqueness, but actually education optimizes for the maximization of uniqueness, which is actually honored, respected, and valued, and now we've created an entirely new structure for society through that first principle. Without that first principle, you can't get home, right? And last piece, the last piece, and thank you for your, your wondrous patience. Let's apply it now to what's happened in the last three or four weeks as you know, the streets have exploded and in response to the tragic and horrific murder of George Floyd, right? And so, so you've got all these arguments happening around the country. You've got this incredible polarization Right, about an incredible number of issues that, that these weeks actually deepened right, on multiple levels. Coronavirus, right, right before George Floyd. Deep fractures in the country. Deep polarization, right, in which we make them the other. And, and, and that's what's... Why does that happen? It happens because there's no deeper sense of identity. If I don't have a deeper sense of shared identity, unique self, then I've got to grab onto my political narrative because that's the only source of identity I have left and then I'll fight to the death for it. That's polarization. It's only if we have a first principle of identity, which is part of a larger set of first principles, but we're just giving one example, which actually unites us. That which unites us far greater than that which divides us, we're all unique selves. That's post-racial. We're not just black or white or yellow or brown. We're each of us unique selves, judged by the content of our unique self-character and our unique self-gift, and not by the color of our skin right, or by our blood. Right? That's wow. But without that first principle, you can't even begin to have the conversation we're in. That's what I mean by a sense of first principles. And that's what Barbara and I mm. were involved with. And we actually created a, a new project right, separate from the center. for There's basically two just two foci. There's the Center for Inner Wisdom and the Foundation for Conscious Evolution, which Barbara and I worked in together. I started the center. Barbara started the foundation. And she 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 made me promise before she passed, which I did, that I would and I'm honored to to continue the foundation and it's really wildly important work and we're working together close. That's one, that's where a lot of the thinking and think tank and writing happens. But we started an independent kind of initiative called One Church, Many Paths, One Mountain, which is a weekly gathering where we're trying to articulate the new story. We actually spend, in every week we get together about 10,000 people have signed up from around the world and we get together and we talk about the new story in the format of a kind of church service, although it's, it's church, it's synagogue, it's mosque, it's global communion. You know, we call it One Church, Many Paths, One Mountain. And it's a, it's, a, it's a gorgeous gathering, right? Which is actually kind of the activist arm of kind of sharing the new story. So something like that. Wow.
0: That, that's a lot. That's a lot to, to digest. Uh, or the fa- my favorite word. Uh, that, that I took from, uh, uh, from the book Stranger in a Strange Land, which it took me 20, 30 years to finally read. Uh, I have the hard copy wow. uh, in a box, and it's, it's, you know, it's thick. You know how thick that thing can be on the bookshelf, right? Totally. Then it came out on Audible. Wow. And so I read it, and I read sections of it over and over and over again, and I read it all the way to the end. I will tell you, first of all, if I was reviewing it, I absolutely loved the story, hated uh, the end. I said, no, you can't end it like this. But hey, it's not my book. But I thought the one <laughs> word that I, I made as a part of me that I'll have to use here to describe it is to grok, to assimilate into every cell, into every subatomic particle of your being, right. the understanding of concepts and principles, philosophy, what have you. And uh, so it's going to take me a while to grok all of, I'll have to listen to this program over, I don't know how many times. Uh, this This is incredible stuff because as you have spoken, if we don't get to the first step, we can forget about all of it. And I'm curious as to how you present this first step to, how should I put this? To the common man. Because many people, not just in this country, but around the world, they are very vested in their own personal philosophies and beliefs. As a matter of fact, someone shared with me not long ago two things that uh, were shared with me not long ago. Well, number one is, if there's something that you believe in, it's a lie. Because you believe it. You don't know it. And there's a difference. And then the other thing Greg Braden said to us on this program when we were talking about his book, The Healing Power of Belief, was he says, there will be a day when we will no longer believe. We will just know. And I can't wait for that day because yeah. there are people who have taken on these different ideas and then they go out and they espouse them that just seems to cause more confusion and or chaos. Um, one of the principles that we, we try to pass on, uh, uh, Mark, is we have an event that's happening inside of a circle and we are standing on that circle and we are moving from point to point on that circle to get a better perspective, to get a better understanding of what's really happening. Not just one, not just 10. If we could do 20, that'd be great. Because that to me is one of the biggest problems that we have right now is people are unwilling to consider a different view of that particular event. So if we go back to this, let's just say the first principle, uh, how, do you, how do you open up someone's mind to even, even considering it?
1: Right. So, so that's, that's a beautiful inquiry, friend. So let me make a distinction between multiple perspectives, which is wonderful. Right, so perspective taking is an enormously important arena in between first principles. First principles are not dogmatic claims, mm-hmm. right? A first principle is like gravity is a first principle. Now you can argue with gravity, but you're just wrong, right? Because gravity is gravity, right? So, in other words, first principles we've forgotten, we're so lost in our beautiful uncertainties, which we came to because we rebelled correctly against the dogmatic certainties that came before. That were imposed on us, so we mm-hmm. threw them off, and we embraced our uncertainty. But then, what we did is, we forgot to integrate afterwards, and we forgot to actually say, "Okay, underneath those uncertainties, what do we actually know?" Because we actually know some—we know some stuff. We know about gravity, for example. Right? We know about electromagnetism. We know about the strong and the weak nuclear, right? So, in other words, there's some things we know. So there's things that we know, those are first principles, and they are actually really easy to explain. Because actually everyone gets them. You know why, Richard? Because they already know them. When you articulate a first principle, you're actually telling a person something that they recognize, right? They know it in their own first person, they just haven't quite been able to articulate it. So a first principle is not an imposed dogma, it's more like the Tibetan Buddhists would call a pointing out instruction, So that which Mm -hmm. we actually already know. And here's the key. And it's a universal. It applies across cultures and across religions and across nationalities. Right? Because if if we didn't have universals, Richard, we'd have no chance of having a shared language. Right? We actually need a universal grammar, but not imposed by by the 1% in the Hunger Games, but actually which is self-evident in every human being. Right? Because the mysteries are within us and you recognize its truth. Now, in terms of unique self, obviously, there's lots of science. We actually know that, for example, Richard and Mark right, were made up of you know 99% the same genetic material, but that 1% is irreducibly unique. And we know that Richard has an irreducibly unique atomic signature, and Richard has an irreducibly unique cellular signature, and if we took, let's say, a picture of Richard's interiors and Mark's, they would actually be singular, and unique. And we know that that exterior expression, right, is a reflection of the interior quality of consciousness. I will say it this way. So let's say we've just met Richard, right? So let's say I think about Richard, and then I think about, let's say, I don't know, my friend Ken Wilber. Okay. So I think, okay, Ken, Richard, am I confused between you? No. Richard has his taste, and Ken has his taste. They're completely not confusing. And that taste, That quality of Richardness actually never was, is, or will be ever again, right? Right? There's a unique quality of intimacy that's Richardness, right? And when Richard and Mark interact, we create between us a new unique field, which is a unique we. And actually, you know that's true. I'm pointing it out, but you're not not believing this because you believe something Mark told you, right? We're actually already where Greg was describing. You actually know that to be true. That's absolute knowledge. We're just pointing it out. So that's what unique self is. I gave you kind of a deep structural so we'd understand the personal beyond the impersonal. But actually, right, unique self can actually get directly, it's a direct pointing out the taste of Richard, irreducibly unique, never was, is, or will be ever again. And then you get the sense, if you want to kind of drop in with me for an even deeper pointing out, you can actually get the sense that Richard was intended by reality. Because Richard's irreducibly unique and he's not just a replicator mean. He's not just an expression, right? So you get the sense, wow, I was intended. And then Richard, as you and I drop in, we say, right, Mark was, in, Richard was intended. You actually get beneath your personality and you feel the field intending you. And then you get, wow, I'm recognized by reality. I'm recognized. And then you get, oh, I'm actually chosen by reality. And then you begin to realize, wow, well, if I was recognized and I'm chosen and I'm intended and I actually feel the animating force of Eros right? Holding me and animating me in every second. I actually feel that I'm actually loved by reality. And then I realize I'm actually desired by reality because it's actually eros and allurement that holds me together and drives me. And then I realize, well, of course, Richard's needed by reality. Oh, wow. Those are the yeah. six core needs beyond Maslow. That's the unique self-set of six core needs that we're now articulating. I actually realize wow. I'm intended, I'm recognized, I'm chosen. Right? Wow. I'm loved, right? I'm desired, I'm needed. And actually every human being has a requirement, an essential set of these six core needs. Maslow got stuck in separate self. Self-actualization is separate self. But actually, that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the story. You got to move beyond separate self. And we're stuck in this Maslow paradigm. It actually doesn't take us home. So that's why that's why Barbara was excited about this conversation. Right? She found me to have this conversation. We had a we had a, the most fabulous last five years and she added of course so much depth and so much beauty and so much prescience and so much barbarous into it's the conversation you know it's kind of like last sentence reality having a barber experience is unique self. <laughs> reality having a richard experience is unique self so i get to meet richard and i got i get to say wow this guy's really exciting and i love his energy and the way he talks and the way he laughs and the way he's excited and the, his beard that has the fullness and his smile and his eyes are dazzling and i don't say to myself man, I, w- I wish I was doing this podcast every week. You know, man, I can't believe he's doing it. No, I'm in devotion to your unique self. I'm delighted. I'm honored, right? Because only if you're in unique self, can we actually not be egoically competitive, subtly manipulating. We get to be in devotion and delight to each other. That's a first principle. It's obvious. It's self-evident yeah. it's within me.
0: Yeah. It, 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 it almost leaves me speechless, which is a bad thing for, a, for an interviewer to do. But we're, we're, but I will, we're good. What's that? We're, we're just about at the end, so we're perfect time. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that uh, I find so fascinating, and, and, and I am thrilled by this conversation, because obviously all of the choices I've made. And right. all of the choices that you have made have brought us here together for this, this get-together, this, this program, this podcast, this interview, this conversation. Which uh, And I feel the same way with every single guest. And I've described it as uh, like a little kid waking up Christmas morning. I get to open up this package, this package, which is Dr. Mark Gaffney's World. And I get to work towards trying to understand what he's sharing with me and, and those people who will listen as well and maybe even incorporate some of what he's sharing in the, in this program, whether it be con- on a conscious level or even on a, on an unconscious or subconscious level into my life that serves me, serves the collective, serves the whole, See, one of the things about this, this, this whole program that we're doing here, Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, is looking for those new ways of living, if we don't start asking these kinds of questions and start talking with people such as yourself, um, you say you have how many principles at this time? The first principle, boy, that is, that is one kick in the head that again, I'm going to have to go back and listen to, but tell me, uh, how many principles have you discovered, created, written down? I mean, I don't know what the process is uh, in terms of.
1: We're writing writing what we call the great library. Mm -hmm. There's essentially 25 volumes, interrelated volumes. Wow! You know, they're all they're all they're mostly done. But we're going to spend the next you know probably three four years just kind of refining them. You know, I'd say about there about 15 of the volumes are complete. Um, a number of them are by Barbara and myself together. Mm -hmm. Two of those are, and maybe we'll get together again in September. The first big one's coming out called the Intimate Universe, September one, God willing. Right. So we'll send that to you, and we'll we'll talk about it. Yeah. there are, there are basically, you know, probably about 75 major first principles, but really they kind of, they're really, they're under kind of, you know, five or six major categories mm-hmm. and they cover the full gamut of human life. But again, none of them, Richard, are declarations and all of them are self-evidently true once you point them out. And that's the key. And I love the question you asked. I'm so glad we elucidated that. None of them are dogmatic impositions. None of them are Marx's idea or Barber's idea. That would would actually wouldn't be helpful. Right? Our job is to actually, you know, when Freud told us about rationalization, for example, right, the idea of rationalization, it's a Freudian idea. It's an obvious idea, right? But, But rationalization is not Freud. Freud pointed towards something that we knew was happening, right? And so therefore rationalization became part of the culture because we can actually all identify it in our first person. Anything I say about a first principle that you can't, if you reflect, you got to drop it. If you can't find in your first person, press delete on. There's not one first principle that anyone in the world cross-culturally can't find in their first person. And that's why this is such a momentous leap and it's why it's so important and so so desperately needed, brother.
0: How do people get in touch with you, whether it be to find out more about <clears throat> the Center for Integral <clears throat> wisdom, uh, or the, uh, the other website, uh, which uh, has to do with center. Uh, I just said that one, or the, um, you have, uh, Mark, uh, gaffney.com. I know that.
1: If that's my personal website, but what I would recommend is, you know, and I'll ask, um, you know, um, Suzette, um, who's one of our associates or Kirsten, our executive director, to send you the website when you post it for one church, many paths, one mountain. Excellent that'd be the best interface for people to come to actually that weekly program and to really participate and enjoy and, and meet people. And it's a, it's a, it's a gorgeous encounter that we have every Sunday. Oh. It last 200 weeks or so. Um, mm. and just fabulous. And, you know, you know, Barbara actually did the first 120 with me. Right. So we did, you know, but, but we, since we recorded a lot of them, often we'll do a little, clip of Barbara, you know, in that context, you know, with us. So it's actually quite beautiful and truly her, the place where she regularly appears in the world now, kind of as a kind of home. And, you know, since we believe in the continuity, we don't believe we know the continuity of consciousness and we'll different conversation, how we know that and why we know that. So Barbara's very much with us. And so I'll definitely send everyone, you know, that link and maybe it'll appear on the screen. It's one church, many paths, one mountain, one church, many paths, one mountain, or, you know, just write me directly and I'll give you my email, which is R-M-G-A-F-N-I, R-M-G-A-F, as in Frank, N-I-R-M-Goffney at gmail.com. Welcome to email me directly and, and just let's, let's do this together.
0: Dr. Mark Goffney, I want to thank you so much for joining us, for sharing with us. Uh, It is truly my honor to have you on the program because I love the description that you gave that we have created, so to speak, a new entity, if you will, a new energy, which is what I love, especially about face-to-face interviews. Obviously, that's not possible, at least at this point, uh, unless, of course, we were to social distance, which is not impossible. But regardless, the, the, the fact that we are having these conversations, that energy goes out. It goes out into the world. It goes out to those who... Uh, are sort of waiting for it listening for it feeling saying hey you know i want more out of my life but one of the things that we talk about is we want to we want i would like for us collectively to move from a place of survival to a place of and this is my own word thrival yeah, from yeah. survival to thrival and it is possible but we have to let go and just as you said at the front of the program of the old narratives the old stories they, they were great well they lasted but it's time for us to do the uh the the new stories and uh, i'm excited about hopefully maybe creating some of them in my own life
1: that's gorgeous that's gorgeous and richard you're a delight thank you
0: Thank you. I have three final questions for you before we wrap up. I like to ask these of my guests. I'm, you may have touched on them during the program, but I like to ask them direct. The first one is Who is Mark Goffney?
1: Who is Mark Goffney? A, a flawed, loving human being trying to be in devotion right, to creating a better tomorrow.
0: What is it that you hope to or want to do? Let me rephrase that. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now?
1: Stop the fulfillment of existential risk through telling a new story, the story of the new human and the um new humanity, right? The fulfillment of Homo sapiens, Homo amor. And finally, what is your life's purpose (laughs) to love to love deeply and, and ever more deeper
0: wonderful well mark thank you again for joining us here on the program and i thank you for listening to tell me your story new paradigms for a new world we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true and until our next broadcast podcast love to lol